What does design even mean? How can you decrease the number of meetings in your schedule? What is one of the smartest ways to make sustainable change? I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore how to design healthier lives. Today's guest is Alan Chachanoff. He is an educator, writer, speaker, and advocate for the power and capacity of design. He's the founding chair of the MFA in Products of Design graduate program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. And he's a partner of Core 77, which is a design network serving a global community of designers and design enthusiasts since 1995. Alan has moderated and led workshops and symposia at venues from the Aspen Design Conference to the Rockefeller Center at Bellagio. He's been invited to speak on design at multiple places from Frog Design and SY Partners to the Rob Wood Johnson Foundation, the New York Times, and the National AIGA. Alan's a frequent lecturer and critic. He has worked with students at schools ranging from MIT to Columbia to Carnegie Mellon. Prior to joining SVA and Core 77, Alan worked in product design focused on the medical, surgical, and diagnostic fields. He's been named on numerous design and utility patents and received awards from the Art Directors Club, the One Club, ID Magazine, and Communication Arts. Coming up on May 23rd and 24th, I'm going to be attending one of my favorite conferences. It's the Brainstorm Design Event in New York City. This is a two-day curated experience that will feature passionate design professionals who will inspire and help you reimagine the future through design. Learn how design is being used to solve the world's biggest problems. And many of the speakers you can connect with have actually been featured on this show. I can't wait to see John Maida, Antonette Carroll, George I, Rachel Dikas, and Georgia Lupi. And I'm excited to see other speakers like Kristen Bellstrom, executive editor at Fortune, and Kate Ronowitz from Google Ventures. As an exclusive offer for listeners of the show, you can use the code DESIGNLAB for a 20% discount on registration. For more information or to register, go to fortunebrainstormdesign.com. Now, here's my conversation with Alan Chachanoff. Alan, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so thrilled that you're on the show. Bon, thank you so much. Um, just, I'm always so excited to talk to you. And congratulations on the second edition of the book. Thank you. Maybe thank you, you can tell our audience a little bit about your book, because I don't know if you actually get to do that on your podcast. I, I don't that much. It's health design thinking. And Ellen Lupton, my co-author, spent the past year during the pandemic interviewing people all over the world on creative responses to the pandemic. So mm -hmm. there was such a great response to the first edition, and this is a sort of a pandemic edition. So yeah, I think it's going to be extraordinary, actually. I love it when guests promote me. That's, that's so cool. <laughs> my Alan. pleasure. I'm a big fan. <laughs> yeah. So if I could go back to school, your program products of design at the School of Visual Arts in New York City would be literally on top of my list. Oh, that's really sweet of you to say. Thank you. It is an amazing program. It's really inspired a lot what we do at my medical school for my design mm -hmm. program. So some of the pedagogy, our approach has really been inspired by your program. Tell us what makes your design program different from others and why is it so special? Uh, well, thanks. That's super nice to hear. I remember the very beginning of when you were starting your lab, you and your team were just so keen on 
learning sort of everything about design, the design process, the capacity and potential for design, which is really the beating heart of sort of what I'm about. Where can this actually take us? I think it's fair to say that very few people know what design is. Uh, maybe even some designers aren't really sure you know, what design is, or at least how much it can do. So building that into a school was an extraordinary privilege. I would say the unique, you know, the selling proposition of our program is that students don't have to choose which flavor of design they go into. I have long argued and actually given talks on this notion that to design anything is to design everything. That you can't just, you know, have an idea and create a brand and a logo. For instance, you would need to understand the context of the logo. You'd need to understand social media, in which case you'd need to understand algorithms and privacy and platforms and dashboards because you probably want to track sort of what happened in that logo. If you were creating a brand, you would probably have all sorts of hardware and platform strategies. Like, are you going to be in Fortnite? Are you going to do collabs with other kinds of organizations? You need tons of like business knowledge and business uh, savvy and awareness to be able to, to play. You're probably going to make stuff. So you're going to need industrial design. And then ideally, you're going to have a purpose. So you're going to need to understand social innovation design. And, and really at the bottom of all this is systems thinking, which I think you and I you know, are just really deeply interested mm. in. That's actually our first course, system scale and consequence. Mm. And understand that everything is part of everything else. So fundamentally systemic thinking, understanding that, you know, there's no such thing as an app, that apps are actually platforms that show up on your phone as an app, but it's really a platform that you're participating on. You have a network effect. Again, you have, you know, accounts and privacy to worry about. You have negative consequences because you have scale. So really understanding scale. Hmm. So I went quickly from the idea of designing a logo to the idea of designing everything, but it's true. And I think that uh, we created a pedagogy where we teach everything from industrial design, like physical product design, digital product design, service design, social innovation design, tons of business. Mm. We have a new behavioral psychology course, a new Imagining Climate Futures course. We're always like changing and really trying to teach to the urgencies of the day. That's the reason why I would enroll in your program, because... <laughs> Traditionally, you have to choose one of those flavors of design, right? I'm going yep. to go into graphic yeah. design or I'm going to industrial design, or there's like this strategic design, more of a business flavor. Yeah. But you do all of the above. It's like truly multidisciplinary. How many programs are there like that currently? Um, I really feel like we are unique. And honestly, like people who apply to our program talk about this is the reason they apply to our program mm. is they understand not only is it fun not to have to choose by the way this interview could be your application interview if you really are coming back to school really so you would you're consider doing, me you're I'm doing so old. well bond i'm just saying you're just <laughs> you know i don't want to tell you that, you know when we're you know we send out our acceptance letters in march but i just for the record you're doing super well if my medical um, school would give me a sabbatical i will be in uh, class, well actually Alan. we should maybe talk about something <laughs> more seriously well again the People, the prospective students who I talk to are just really clear that they would love to not have to choose, but just, you know, sort of for the fun of it. I mean, students love making service platforms. They love making apps. They love making, you know, furniture. They love making Arduino and smart objects. And they love making business models. If the teachers are amazing, we have like the best, the most incredible business faculty. And we have, I would say, four or five business courses, mm -hmm. everything from like learning about the stock market to leadership and strategic management. You're teaching designers. 
about the stock market. Yeah, actually, that's the first thing in in our very first business course. Students pick a portfolio, like a fictional, you know, sort of team, but of real companies, and they track them through the fifteen weeks of the semester, and they see where their stock goes and track back why. So they learn a lot about different sectors,、uh, including the healthcare sector. You know, teachers Toshi Mogi is the teacher, phenomenal. Uh, who's, who's that? I have no idea who that is. He's at Frog Design. He is just one of the savviest business and strategy people I've ever met. Incredible、mm. people skills and extraordinary teaching skills. Students just really adore him,、mm. and he teaches everything, as I say, from stock market to every business model. He uses case studies. We found that you know, learning from B school, from business school,、mm. and some of the methodologies、uh, work really, really well for designers. I think it's one of the reasons why you see a lot of design courses popping up in B schools. Yeah.、Um, so using case studies and just a lot of Socratic method of the、yeah. students, in interchange between the faculty and the students. Yeah, he's a star. Students love that. Medical students love that.、Yeah. We we do interesting medical cases, and we teach through a narrative of a patient. Getting a diagnosis,、yep. finding a diagnosis, and it's just a lot more interesting for the students. And people love examples; they love learning through,、yeah. and it's like a story, right?、It's、learning through storytelling. I think the marker of a great program is our alumni from the program, and I've gotten to work with amazing alumni for from your、mm. program. I'm actively working with them, like Eden Liu, oh my goodness, Josh Corn,、yeah. who started Double Take Labs.、Ooh. We're working on a project with them right now with、uh, Burke Elon and.、Yeah. They're amazing, and that's why I was drawn to your program. I said, "Where did you all train?" And it was like, "Oh, products of design、yeah. at SVA." And the weird thing about your program is there's no grades. Is that still true?、Uh, it is still true. Although I will tell you, Bon, we are in our tenth year now, and next year we'll be graduating our tenth year of students. So we're pretty young. But I did always imagine that for the tenth year we might like have grades. We would we'd run an experiment. But then the thing is, like, if all the work got better, then I would just be upset with myself that we didn't do this you know, nine <laughs> years ago. And if all the work, if nothing changed, I'd be like, see, like we were right from the beginning. So there's no outcome that would actually justify the experiment. Experiment would be pretty disruptive. Yeah, so I'm pretty explicit when I talk about this, and we're very explicit on the website about why we want to create an atmosphere of trust and generosity,、mm. and we want the relationship between the students and the faculties to be one of trust, to, to be collegial, like, that they're going to be colleagues, not teacher student. And indeed, our students and faculty keep in touch with each other like all the time after school. And I would say more than in, in a typical school. And I think、mm. that having no grades means that somebody isn't like watching you and measuring you all the time. And I've said frequently that I think one of the biggest problems in the world is what we choose to measure and how we measure it. So no grades there. And then, really, equally important is we want the students to create maximum risk. We、mm. want them to just take as many chances and create as much sort of breakaway work. As they can, and you know, I mean, I've talked to lots of students about this. It seems very clear that they just wouldn't if there were grades.、Hmm. You know, they've been trained to grades like their whole lives. Typically, most of our students, and they just it would be very tough for them to take such a chance that the teacher would not approve or would feel alienated or wouldn't get it.、Um, no grades us gets us maximum risk, in my opinion.、Hmm. You probably find more creativity in the students coming from the students without grades, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I believe so. We we do have a couple of faculty who have said, you know, I actually love grades and I would like to have them, 
But I think it's no secret that most faculty in most schools really like hate grades. And to grade people in the cre in creative pursuits is tricky. I do teach in another program that has grades, and I'm just very clear with my students that I grade for effort as opposed for mm. results. And you know, growth and participation and things like that are about enriching the, the whole of the class as opposed to you did something excellently. So I try and be holistic when I have to give grades, but it's really tough. Uh, and I have to take it seriously because sometimes, you know, student aid depends on grades. So mm. I don't discount them. I actually spend a lot of time in grading. But yeah, no, we don't. Now that we're sort of at our 10-year mark and didn't run the experiment, I guess I can actually stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Unless we do it next week. <laughs> next week, we're going to have grades and the students are like, what? We're really busy right now. You um, have yeah. this course called design delight that I wish we had in medical mm. school. Tell us about this design delight course and maybe what we can learn about your course for those of us who are in the medical field. Sure. Well, in medicine is actually one of the things that, or healthcare in general is one of the things that I talk about to people to help them understand sort of what design is and what it can be. Maybe we can actually return to that. But the Design Delight course is, again, a foundational course. It was one of the first courses that was imagined. The faculty is the extraordinary Emily Baltz. Um, and the initial discussions were that it would be a course that was not about problem solving or that mm. it was about not problem solving. It was about putting something into the world that wasn't there before that was wonderful, wondrous, and literally delightful. And it's morphed a little bit. It is an experienced design course because Emily is an experienced designer. Her background is a lot in food design, molecular gastronomy from years ago, and just all sorts of really like embodied experiences. She works with the students in the fourth semester uh, and they take their thesis territory, their thesis topic, and they imagine it through the lens of experience design. These experiences happen in public with real people, typically like, you know, in Washington Square Park or on the High Line or in a sort of a vacant, you know, retail storefront that the students will take over for a day or two. The students, you know, help each other because these events happen over different days. And they will do everything from helping people understand sexual violence, a mm. uh, project that you're familiar with, mm -hmm. Antje Wegemann's reimagined uh, rape kit, to the future of AI in self-driving cars. Actually, that was a really interesting one. Um, Lasser Feasley set up a, a car in Union Square Park, just parked along the, you know, the perimeter of the park, and had people come in to have an experience of a self-driving car and the AI. Mm. And what he did is he put a false steering wheel front over the steering wheel, like, you know, where the horn is. And inside it was a one-way mirror and there was a camera and a microphone and off-site, he had an actor, actress, be the voice of the AI. Mm. So they could actually see the person sitting there and hear them and talk to them through a headset, uh, the speakers in the car. But the person in the car actually thought that it was an AI that they were talking to. And very quickly, it's revealed that you're talking to, I think it's like a nine-year-old kid who actually hasn't learned to drive yet, is the, the character that's played by the car. And so, you know, the person would get in and say, so, you know, so tell me a little bit more about how this is self-driving. And just like, well, I actually can't tell you that much because I'm still learning to drive. Mm. And the person would be like, wait, what? And be like, mm -hmm. yeah, like I'm new, like self-driving cars are like new. I'm like nine. And this was like this incredible reveal moment that made people think about like, well, what is intelligence? You know, what is mm -hmm. intelligence built into an artifact such as an automobile? 
And do we need to think about AI as something that actually learns like a kid learns? And of course, we need to think about AI as something that actually learns. That's literally what happens. So this was done in Emily's course. Mm -hmm. So it was about having this embodied. It was, it was almost like it was physical because they were like in this car. They were having like a verbal out loud conversation with what they thought was a computer and having this revelation about it wasn't so much that the car was anthropomorphized is that self-driving was new to the car, just like it was new to the potential like mm. non-driver. And I think this is a great example of like the power of design. It's a prototype. It was theater, it was a bit of a stunt, and I think it blew people's minds. But again, I think it was revelatory in a way that was like just hugely unexpected, hugely impactful. And also, and this is the last thing I'd say, you would think, well, this is a bit of a one-liner. Oh, they find out that it's a kid. But the conversation that they would have after they found that out was rich mm. and interesting. And again, it's a big word, revelatory, but I think that it was. That's a nice example of a project that came out of that course. Listening to you talk, I'm reminded that healthcare is an experience. You know, thinking about having symptoms of nasal congestion, sore throat, and going, maybe I have COVID, the fear of trying to get a rapid test or a PCR yeah. test. Should I bother even going to the hospital at this point? Kind of question. Yeah. Yeah. Getting a diagnosis, experiencing what that diagnosis is of COVID, of maybe getting sicker and then telling your friends and family members and maybe end up going to the emergency room. That's all yeah. this experience that I think we forget that healthcare is experienced, especially as doctors. Oh yeah. And, and I know a lot of times the only time, not the only time, but one of the main reasons why doctors remember it's experience when they themselves become a patient and go, sure. Oh yeah, this kind of sucks. This experience yeah, it's like that, of healthcare. That thing that ever the world would be a happier place if everyone worked as a waiter or waitress for two weeks then everyone would be nicer like in one month on planet earth which i think is probably is great and kind of true you know healthcare is as i said it's one of the things food is the other thing mm. that's really useful to talk to people about design and the impact of design so you, you talk about healthcare to your students Oh, yeah. Well, actually, my background is, as you know, is in medical design. Um, yeah. Both my parents were pharmacists. My uncle was was an obstetrical anesthesiologist who like literally wrote the book on obstetrical anesthesiology. I did a master's in phlebotomy, laboratory blood collection, stick-proof hypodermic needles. I did a lot of work around HIV AIDS. I worked on the first home HIV test You kit. worked on the first home HIV yeah, test? Yeah, in secret for two years uh, for Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and I actually really missed that stuff. You're a hardcore medical device designer. Uh, yeah, I did uh, laparoscopic instruments. I, I enjoy like very sort of tiny, fussy things. So mm -hmm. designing surgical instruments was sort of a, you know, a dream gig for me. But I worked at an extraordinary company up in Connecticut called Tanaka Capec Design Group. Maybe we can link to them also in yeah. the show notes. You did that two-hour drive from Brooklyn to Connecticut. It was, well, <laughs> on the train. <laughs> the it's train. true. Yeah, I reverse commuted from Brooklyn to South Norwalk two hours a day. And in those days, there were no laptops or cell phones. So like, you know, I read the paper and I, you know, <laughs> I, I slept on the way home. But healthcare, as I say, is just this amazing territory to help people understand. So as well as sort of what stakeholders are. So just mm. as like a, you know, two-minute version of this. So, you know, a lot of people will say that healthcare is all about technology, right? It's mm. about machines. It's about R&D. It's about discovery. You know, we live in a miraculous time and we can diagnose and we can intervene in ways that were unimaginable. Sure. mRNA vaccines, diagnostic tests. Yeah, just all of it. 
And so really medicine is about tech. And then there will be other people who will be like, well, no, actually medicine is about the doctor-patient or the nurse-patient or the nurse-practitioner-patient relationship. That medicine is, you're in the relationship business, that this is about people, mm. that the tools and devices that surround it are diagnostic, let's say, and interventional, but that really it's about people, right? Mm. And then other people would say, well, actually, no, medicine is about rules and regulatory and procedures. And then you quickly get to a fourth group, which is, well, medicine is about data, is about information as a material. This is really where we are right now, mm. data-driven uh, medicine, where we're not counting on someone's expertise, experience, or instincts. We're counting on just data because we can collect and process so much of it. And then you have a very, very loud group in this country, which is that medicine is all about money. It's mm. about insurance payers and payees. And don't you fool yourself in thinking about that it's anything about money. Now, again, that's going to be unique to a country like the United States without socialized medicine. But I mean, you're in this game. It is so much about money, but it is mm. so much about these other four things. Now, each of those things can be seen as a design space, right? Or as a design problem space, because in the relationship business, what you were talking about before is people making a, like a risk calculus mm. around COVID. Let's say, should they even go to the hospital? Apparently, I shouldn't even bother going to the hospital. If I go to the hospital, am I actually going to risk getting sicker? And very importantly, am I actually going to risk infecting somebody else? Maybe mm. I should just self-quarantine, right? But it's about insurance because how many home tests can I afford? And PCR tests, right, can be expensive and my insurance will only pay for X, Y, Z. It's obviously about technology and R&D because it took a long time. Mm. Actually, vaccines were started quite early on, but in the sort of grand scheme of things, it was like, you know, a total sprint to the vaccine. But I think people felt that it took a long time, that it was an R&D. You know, we need technology to solve this. And so you can see all of these different sort of factors coming in. We're all a product of design, which is why mm. our program is called Products of Design, because everything is a product of design. And if you look at them through the lens of design, I think that you are much more likely to not only have insight and maybe even some wisdom about things, you're very much more likely to have compassion mm. about things. And so this notion that design is about empathy and, and imagining somebody else's reality, you know, there are, of course, limits to empathy and how much you actually could imagine somebody else's lived experience and lots of, you know, debate and discussion around that right now. But, it, you know, if you consider that design as being in the service of others, the first move is imagining, you know, the others. And again, mm -hmm. I understand that it's completely biased and contaminated by the lived experience of the design person themselves and completely, you know, underrepresented across the board. But, but it's playing on a good team, I would say, design. I have so many favorite Alan Chachnoff quotes. And uh -oh. what you're talking about reminds me of a quote that you said every kind of design is bleeding into every other kind of design. Oh, well, I don't remember saying that, but yeah, I would, yeah. I would agree with that. I, it's still it's on the internet. Alan. Bleeding into. Wow. Yeah. What All does right, that so mean? What does I'm that mean? Using, using imagery there. <laughs> uh, well, I must have been I must have been working with blood and phlebotomy <laughs> at the time. That's my central metaphor. I saw a lot of blood, I got to say, during that thesis research, and I Stuck my finger a lot of times working on that HIV kit. And, you know, it hurts. You, you sort of get used to it, but I have a 
soft spot for people who have to check their blood glucose repeatedly through, you know, sticks. It's, it hurts. <laughs> and yeah, talking about your example, it's like, you know, you have the medical devices, the design of the mRNA vaccine to the policy mm-hmm. design around payment to the yeah. experience. Sorry, I didn't design. even mention on policy on yeah. that. Like, the huge. experience design of what it looks like for a patient to get a yeah. test, to go to the hospital and all yeah. these different flavors of design are just like intersecting. We have a new behavioral psychology course that was a smash success last semester. And again, we talk about like the calculus around risk that each of us is doing. Like, should I go to this thing? And if I go to this thing and then I'm traveling right after that, I really shouldn't go to this thing. But if I'm not traveling, maybe I could go to this thing. All of these really behavioral economics, behavioral psychology decisions, again, everything is made of people. Mm. And so this is more than the policy of, of a government, you know, telling you, asking you, begging you to look out, to consider the welfare of others by wearing a mask, which again, I think the messaging was like sort of immediately wrong on, you know, you wear a mask for the other person, not for you, a little bit for you. And what are the decisions that you're making when you feel the agency or when you feel that you want to make the decision about how you're going to react again mm-hmm. in your example around covid and risk mitigation. It's fascinating. And again, made out of people and psychology. Is that design? Yes, that is 100% design, right? These, these campaigns, these brandings, the way people think about masking, for instance, is a design problem mm. and can be handled through the tools and strategies of design, as you well know from your lab. You said, quote, before we design anything new, we should examine how we can use what already exists to better ends, end of quote. What does that yeah. mean? Well, I guess I would still get under that one as well. One of the things that I talk to my students actually about is design as an equation. Uh, mm. And this is actually pretty effective. And I think I've gotten better as a teacher in sort of pulling out sort of how this could be helpful. So in an equation, you have different ingredients, right? Elements in the equation. Typically, maybe you're trying to balance the equation or you're trying to, you know, sort of change whether the right side or the left side increases or decreases. But so many things in life, um, when they're broken down to their elemental parts, are made of parts in a whole. And I think a designer rushes to create a new ingredient and put it in there. But the rearranging of existing elements is actually one of the smartest and wisest and the most sustainable ways of making change. Using what's already there does some interesting things really effectively. It, It respects and honors ennobles and then raises up local Mm. knowledge, for instance. So the people in the equation, there's a a notion that they're going to know best. Mm. You can't come in as an outside designer, parachute in, tell people something clever and then leave Mm. that you actually need to design with, not for or at. So when you think about what's already in the equation, I think you're ahead of the game right away Mm. just by listening to the elements that are already in the equation. Can you give like an, a real life example of that? Yeah. Well, actually, why don't you give me an example and I will break it down as an equation. How about that? What came to mind was mm-hmm. Michael Murphy, who was a recent guest. Mm-hmm. He's a head of Amazing. mass design group. And when he was building a hospital in Rwanda that treats mm-hmm. tuberculosis patients or mm-hmm. patients with tuberculosis, what he did was he looked at the existing environment mm-hmm. and also look at the existing people around yep. the hospital and said, Hey, there's all these skilled laborers who know how to work with stone. 
and they do like amazing work. And there's all this raw material, there's stone all over the place. So yep. he used a local stone around the hospital and hired mm-hmm. local workers to build it. And what the end result was, is this beautiful created hospital that was sustainable, that used local materials and supplies. Because what often ends up happening is a Western architect comes in and goes, okay, how are exactly. we going to make a hospital yeah. that we see that looks like the mm-hmm. U.S.? bring materials in there, hire people who aren't from that community. And what he he did was what you said, he like rearranged the existing elements and came up with something that was beautiful and functional. Well, I, I, again, I, I think you articulated that like you know, eloquently and perfectly. Michael is an incredible designer. Actually, this project is, is really well documented on the internet. Great pictures, interviews, I mean, your podcast. So that's something that I think your audience should definitely check out. You know, I think Michael does something there that he does almost all the time, which is to, you know, build capacity. Mm. So when you're using local knowledge, literally local materials, local human capital, right, labor, and then something that's actually self-run where you're creating a business, let's call it, mm-hmm. an organization, a machine that actually functions locally on local resources, you are, I don't know, you're building capacity, you're, you're like unleashing capacity. And I think it is exactly because it can be seen as an equation that you're moving parts around or you are just using your ears and your humility to recognize what parts are already there and that the cleverness comes in creating maybe like to use the metaphor of an orchestra like a new score for the players that you already have in a way where they can play differently Mm. maybe they can play better maybe they can play more effectively but they can play in a way that they didn't maybe see before because you have a designer who can make connections between things that just weren't connected before. Mm. And of course, the first you know, obvious move is like dropping the ego, right? Dropping mm. this notion that mm. you know better. Um, we talked earlier, a woman that I often reference, Petrula Rontikas in California, this extraordinary designer. And she said something to me years ago that I've quoted a million times, which is that she works with her ears. And this is a great thing for a graphic designer to say that she listens to her clients first, and then she can be creative and inventive as a design person. But listening comes first. And you know, I think that the, the design profession in the world has caught up with her in terms of you know the popularity of human-centered design but I heard her say this years ago, and I've never been the same since. It's very mm. hard to listen. You know, mm. it's the hardest thing, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, a study done on doctors listening to patients, and doctors mm-hmm. uh, interrupt patients in the first something like 12 seconds. <laughs> so it's, it's hard for doctors to listen to their patients. But when we do, we get so, with so much more out of it. Yeah. This is, I think, where the behavioral psychology part comes in, too. My favorite is the study that if the doctor sits, that the patient will have a a sort of a recollected estimation of how many minutes they were together that is increased by, I think it's 28%. It is that I do. And sometimes it's on a chair uh, in the exam room. So often I sit on a garbage can, but I know the simple act of sitting and definitely when I deliver bad news. So when a family member has died or a loved one has died, I make sure I sit uh, a lot of times there isn't a chair, so I end up squatting to tell the deliver the bad news. Actually, let I, me let me yeah, ask you a little yeah. bit. I would love for you to tell me or tell you know your audience a little bit more. That sounds like 
one of the most extraordinary moments in an experience in a designed experience like what else are you able to bring to bear from your head or from your heart in a moment like that because it's it's beyond medicine it is i know that it is a moment that will never be forgotten in this human's yeah. life and i try as best as possible in the chaos of the emergency department to humanize it so yeah. i try to find a private room i try to be i'm definitely clear as to what happened and and i know that it's important to say the actual words that you know your wife or your son mm -hmm. or your daughter mm. has died as opposed to going they passed away and but i know that anything else i say after that is not going to be heard because of the shock and so i make sure i convey oh. all the information i need before i deliver the bad news and i want to honor that person and that family and not see not appear rushed to be with them in that moment including your posture including the posture right yeah. I, you know make sure my phone's not going off i make sure i'm at eye level and I sit with them. And so I make sure I have a little bit of time to do that. So it is the hardest thing I do in my job. I can imagine. Might I ask, is it more or less frequent that you actually have some knowledge of who this person is? I mean, in an ER, it's not like this is a patient suffering something chronically. Rarely, rarely do I know anything about the patient or the family member. So there's very little to join with them on. Oh, no. Yeah. They're a stranger. This is me meeting them for the first oh, time. Oh my goodness. And so I'm meeting you for the first time. I'm delivering the worst news that you've ever heard. Yeah. I think about design, like, you know, like training head, heart, and hand. Those really come together in a moment that you're describing. Wow. Mm. A couple more Alan Chachanov quotes. Uh, I like this one. I don't know how we segue from this, but <laughs> <laughs> give it a shot. I, Bon, I have to say, like, you know, thank you for sharing. I, I, probably don't talk about this very much. And thanks for sharing. That sounds like a very, again, like maybe the most challenging, you know, where you have to be like a professional, but you have to have extraordinary, you know, human and communication skills. It's beyond that, actually. Yeah, I don't know if there yeah. are actually words to describe that, you know, yeah. use cases, designers would call it. Well, you make a great interview, Alan, so you should start your own podcast. <laughs> podcasts are really hard. Everyone thinks that they're interesting, but every podcaster I've talked to says, you have no idea how hard this is. I've actually never entertained doing it, but maybe it's easy for you. I don't know. Yeah. You said, quote, first do no harm is a good starting point for uh, everyone, but it's especially a good starting point for designers. And I love that because we were taught day one in medical school, do yep. no harm. But yep. why should designers abide by this principle that doctors abide by? Yeah. So this is from a manifesto that I wrote. I don't know if it was 1988 you know, or 92 or something like that. I mean, it's really, it's decades old at this point. It's a manifesto for sustainability and design. I've written several manifestos, it's turned out, and I've written lots of sort of 1,000 word articles that are like exactly 1,000 words, which mm -hmm. is just, you know, making things more difficult for myself. So it takes like, you know, hours to write the article <laughs> and then double the number of hours to edit it down. 
using the word count, you know, tool in Microsoft Word to get it to exactly a thousand words. That manifesto has lasted. I know there's lots of teachers who actually use it still mm. in teaching. Emily Pilliton does in California, which thrills me. She's one of my design heroes. She's my design and, hero also yeah. on this podcast. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Right behind me. Yeah, I visited actually. It was during COVID, oh, so there, there weren't any girls in the garage. But it was still amazing to be able to just like see the place after you know watching it and hearing yeah. and reading and talking to Emily about she it. She is a rock star. Years. Yeah, I thought that it would be you know sort of clever to start with the Hippocratic Oath. Actually, and I think that because it was so long ago, I was still really affected by Victor Papanek. Um, which I think has like just turned a lot of design students into like, you know, oh my goodness, like what did I choose to do? Like Who's I that? want no part of this kind Who's of thing. Who's Victor dude? Well, he wrote a, I mean, he's lots of things, but he's probably most famous for writing a book called Design for the Real World. You can probably find it on eBay, but it's the kind of book that will change you. It will change your life. It will change the way you look at design. And it was quite popular when I was in grad school in the mid 80s, 86 and 87. I mean, it was actually popular long before that, but I remember a lot of us reading it and just like completely freaking out. And one of the sentences that is most often quoted when you're talking to design people, and I hope I can get this close to right, is, you know, there are a few professions like more dangerous than industrial design, but only a very few. Mm. Yeah, mm. like right in your face. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, you read this book and you just understand like the waste, the toxicity, the labor practices, the, the just the crime of mass production. Hmm. And you rethink, you know, like, what did I do? What did I choose? What's an example of a industrial design product that is a crime against humanity? Oh, wow. Well, I guess I'm, it's no fair to, to turn it on on you at this point. <laughs> I actually do have a story. I worked for a company and we were designing an office product. I don't think I can say too much because you're going to know who it is. I should probably leave it anonymous. But it was a company that made lots of products that had cartridges. Mm -hmm. You had to refill a part of this. Like let's, you know, let's anonymize it and call it, you know, a laser printer. So it was a printer. Mm -hmm. So we designed a printer that didn't have cartridges, that didn't use ink, right? Or toner powder. And so it was one of the things I was so excited about. Like we had really like solved this problem. It wasn't literally a printer. And the client was, they were impressed, I think with the ingenuity, but they were really disappointed. And he, it was a guy who said, um, so where's the consumable? And I said, what? And he said, where's the consumable? We're in the consumable business. And I had actually never heard that word. Um, it was early in my design career. Mm. And I was just like, oh my goodness, like this company is in the business of making things that you throw away and get a new one of mm. cartridges. And, and I think anyone listening can, you know, look at everything from their coffee makers and their pods to, well, to literally their printers where you're really, you know, printing companies are in the cartridge business. You know, they give you the printer for like $30 or yeah. whatever it is, $70. So cheap now, but it's the cartridges typically cost more where they were in the consumable business. And once that light is turned on in that room, you start to see everything through the lens of that mm -hmm. light. And so I guess that's probably the, the broadest example I can give where the design is intentionally to use something up and to charge you to replace it. So it's built into the business model 
which goes back earlier to what I was saying that everything is also a business and why designers need to learn, you know, as much about business as they do about form and function, for instance. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good example because yeah. it's extensible. Food is a great example. You know, mm. the majority of food is actually thrown out. I think it's slightly over 50%. Mm. You're probably going to find statistics, you know, that vary, but it's an extraordinary amount. And so, you know, we have students who will do projects around like ugly food, you know, vegetables mm. that, that aren't chosen in the grocery store, don't even make it to the grocery store, might make it to a farmer's market. And so can you actually design a brand that makes funny looking vegetables and fruits that look imperfect, palatable, desirable, even with affection. And so we've had lots of projects that have done this like brilliantly through branding and a kind of experience design where you feel like you're actually doing something positive and constructive by choosing an imperfect fruit. Mm. So that's not a design crime. I don't think farmers are trying to create fruit that doesn't look like the ideal sort of photo of it. Um, but it's an opportunity where it is, you know, somewhat, I guess, criminal to be throwing away so much because we have a bias that food should look like it does in magazines. Design crimes. I love it. <laughs> uh, you wrote something in 2018 that actually personally changed my professional life. And I'm going to link the article to the, our newsletter. And you said, quote, my argument is that we are never going to change meetings as long as we call oh. them meetings. And that was pre-pandemic. And now we're in the Zoom era. Yeah, maybe prescient in that way. I forgot about it. Everyone that. still should read that article that you wrote because it will change their professional work life. So yeah. we will link that article in the newsletter. Oh, thank you so much. Tell us about why we need to rename meetings. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I think you need to start a new podcast called You Wrote This or You Wrote That. And <laughs> you wrote you so much stuff good stuff. There's like, I have a thousand people more can be like, oh yeah, no, I don't believe that anymore. It's <laughs> just like, I could never, sometimes students will come up to me and be like, oh, you know, I really have fond memories of, you know, being in your class in 2004 or whatever. And I'll never forget when you said, you know, X, Y, Z. And I'm like, okay, like, it's really nice to see you. There is no way that would have come out of my mouth. <laughs> like, I am just like ethically opposed to what you just said. And they're like, I'm telling you, like you said it and it really stuck with me. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> I get that all the time, Alan, too, because yeah. I've trained, you know, hundreds of medical students and residents yeah. and they'll come up to me yeah, 10 years ago. I was working with you in the ER. You said this at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And I said, I never said that. Is it? Yeah. yeah, you did. I'm like, embarrassing. Like, it's all about the playlist. <laughs> the music is the most important thing in the operating theater. You're like, well, what about the patient? And you're like, yeah, the patient, but the music, maybe you said that. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. So this, this article that I wrote, if you Google my last name, Chachanov, and then no meeting, you'll find it. It's got a very uh, admittedly link baity title that I was actually criticized, you know, for just like, you know, it was supposed to be a joke. So I think it's like something like change everything that you hate about meetings with this one simple word. I'm really proud of that thing. Um, how can I talk about this quickly? The idea is that, again, everybody hates meetings and that meetings are like ridiculous and you shouldn't have a meeting without an agenda. And frankly, you probably shouldn't have a meeting at all because most meetings are the agenda is to decide to agree on something. Yeah. Like, what are we going to do? Um, and there is no deciding to agree because people have different opinions. They have different stakes in any kind of decision. Um, and unless people actually do something, they have no new knowledge beyond what they already believe or they're already you know, built in biases. 
And so I put up a poster at the beginning of the program called No Prototype, No Meeting, which, which I firmly believe this is something that IDEO was professing at the same time. And I think a lot of designers really understood the value of the prototype, like sort of make anything rather than like talk and describe and, and sort of imagine. So, so that poster did really well and it became a real ethos in the department. No prototype, no meeting. Uh, mm. Your price to go into a meeting is to actually bring something to that meeting. Almost treating it as like a show and tell kindergarten totally. classroom, right? Yeah. No. And again, I think people describing things is always a mistake. Like drop them into it, put something in their hand, even something, a really low res prototype, low resolution prototype mm. that can conjure an experience. Like I can imagine using this, like I know it wouldn't look like this and I know it doesn't actually work, but I can imagine being there with it. It's just infinitely more powerful yeah. than saying to somebody now, imagine you were, you know, walking into the OR and you had to you know, and you were grabbing this copper rail because, yeah. you know, copper has like antimicrobial, you know, um, features to it or properties to it. It honors the time of the other people in the meeting. You have like 12 smart people who are giving up an hour of their time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You prepared a little exactly. bit for this and you're honoring their time. 100%. Yeah. Before I wrote the article, or the reason I wrote the article is, you know, we were having a staff meeting. We, we don't have a lot of them. And, you know, it came up and I said, well, what if we actually like, you know, change the word meeting, you know, in a friendly way, outlawed the word meeting, because students still had lots of meetings where they were, you know, deciding to agree the whole time instead of like, you know, inventing stuff, which is kind of the point of the program. And Alicia Wessler, our director of operations at the time said, well, what about the word review? Mm. Um, and I said, that's it. She said, well, no, 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 let's talk about it. And I said, no, like you nailed it. It's in the word. And so what I talk about in the article is if you had something at today at three o'clock that was called a review, you look pretty foolish showing up to something called a review mm. empty handed. Hmm. Like you would do something in preparation of a review. You would do nothing in preparation of a meeting other than dread the meeting. So I went back to my office and I went into my autocorrect on my laptop and my phone, and I made it impossible for me to type the word meeting. Um, so if I typed the word meeting, <laughs> it would that. change it to the word review. And so I'd be writing an email saying, hey, you know, I think we should probably have a meeting about, and then it would say a review about. And I'm like, well, actually, it would be good if each of us brought like a different scenario of what we wouldn't want to happen. Or it would be good if everyone brought just a little sort of system diagram of all the different like stakeholders in this area. And I lived with that for seven months where I couldn't type the word meeting. And then I wrote an article and one of our amazing faculty, Bill Cromie, wrote some software that is linked to in the article where you can download a Chrome extension called No Meeting that will do this for you automatically. You won't need to go into an autocorrect and hack it. And he even wrote a Slack bot so that if you type the word meeting into Slack, it will change the word into review and will ask you, like, do you want me to change meeting to the word review so that you can, you know, optimize the productivity of your next gathering? Uh, like, it's very sort of supportive and it's written nicely. Mm -hmm. Bill did an incredible job with that. Yeah. So I would suggest that anyone who's like, you know, driven nuts with going to meetings, again, that have no agenda, that where nothing gets done, that just raise frustration and reinforce politics and power structures mm. to read this article or to forward it to someone who needs to read it and give it a try. And I think it's actually even more applicable right now, Alan, because there's been a proliferation of meetings when before it would be, hey, let me just talk to you about something. It's like, hey, Here's a Zoom invite for a oh one-hour meeting on my yeah, calendar. Yeah, formalize that. And 
are you crazy? We did not need to meet like this before the pandemic. And, you know, I was blown away by a quote unquote meeting I had with someone recently about our curriculum. And you know what he did? He actually they said, hey, let's look at this mirror board. So it's like this mirror, for those who don't know, it's a digital whiteboard. And it's I like, love it. Here, here yeah. are my thoughts. And let me show you what I'm thinking of. It was the most productive hour I've had. Right. Right. Yeah. Because he brought a prototype yeah. and he, he, he showed us. Bring anything before. Yep. Yeah. And so all the, you that, could do like a, a prototype of all the things you don't want to do mm, as something to bring to a meeting. Mm, right. Like, let's not do this better than nothing. Mm, yeah. So you've had really good experience with that. Great experience. Thank yeah. you, Alan. No, thank you. No, I'm a big fan of Miro as well. Um, I'm going to start getting into fig jam soon. Fig jam? Yeah, is that something you a, eat? Yeah, well, maybe it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's a part of Figma, which is an extraordinary prototyping tool for UX and UI. And well, really, you can like do almost anything in it, but they're really, it seems that they're really doubling down on uh, groupware, you know, collaborative mm. software. So people are um, saying wonderful things about this. I'm a little behind the times and not having experimented with it, but uh, you know, it's the other thing about design schools, you know, we're surrounded by faculty who are working professionals who can bring in not only the urgencies of the day in terms of content to, to work around in design, the tools, the most contemporary tools, which is really good for students, you know, resumes and, you know, skill section on their resume that they're fluent in all of these different platforms. And there are so many and they're all pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's beyond Photoshop and Illustrator. There's lots of, even just doing some code, like we teach some Arduino, you don't have to be a coder, but mm -hmm. I think that you need to understand what coding is and mm -hmm. what, you know, coders actually do and how they think and, sort of how quickly something can go wrong with just a misplaced semicolon. Mm. The whole thing like breaks with one, one, one yeah. misplaced semicolon. To understand that is really useful. It's a way to understand, again, some of the things, foundational things that people who are creating algorithms are up against. It's actually kind of funny too, like that it can break, that it's so fragile, but so unbelievably robust at the same time. Like, how does that work? What's it made of? Mm. It's made of design. My final questions, I like to put my guests on the spot. From your perspective, how might we design healthier lives? Oh, that's such a good question. Particularly now when I think everybody is complaining about, you know, not going to their physical therapist right now. That's, you know, anymore. That's me. Uh, not, you know, exercising at home, stopping their mindfulness or meditation practice what they're eating, how much they're moving. I mean, probably the answer, I mean, unless you have something that's chronic or acute, is the consistency, is the daily practice of healthful ways of, you know, going about your life. And, you know, back to the point that anything is everything. This is everything from mental health and sort of anxiety mm. reduction to drinking more water. <laughs> Right, just like like hydration of the body to to movement. It's it has to be looked at a, as a holistic process because it is. And so it has to be looked at as a holistic practice because it needs to be. My brother-in-law is, is a naturopath, and I really enjoy talking to him about you know the notion of integrative medicine. Mm -hmm. And that so much of Western medicine is, you know, sort of fixing the part of the machine, the knee of the leg, but why is the knee, you know, having problems? Like what's the actual occupation? How is that knee being used day in and day out? You know, providers or 
practitioners won't even ask, mm. like, what is your day like? And so understanding the whole person is going to be integral to being able to do any kind of diagnosis or intervention. When you say, you know, what do we do about health? Maybe the first thing is we look at the whole instead of the part. And then maybe you would say start anywhere. I don't mm. know. How would you answer that yourself today, especially having gone through the last two and a half years that we've been going through? Yeah, I think for me personally, I look at each day as this, I look at the day as a mm. design medium, right? That's like so cool. here are ways that I could design my day to be healthier. Oh, and I have I to love make that. some conscious choices of, am oh, I going so to, great. how am I yeah. going to set my priorities of the day? Because mm -hmm. I love to exercise and work out. But, you know, one thing I don't call it working out like meeting, I call it kind of, I'm going to go to my uh, body studio, you know, oh. which is my garage gym. And Wow. Well, all right. Link to Bonku's body studio, which <laughs> would actually be, can I do the logo for that please? <laughs> but I know it'll be more than the logo. I'm going to do your social media strategy. Yeah, but you know, I'm going to I'm going to prioritize. There's a certain time of day mm -hmm. that I like to work out in the mid afternoon and I'm yeah. not going to fill in meetings during that do time. Do you so. actually put it in your schedule? Because I've, I've read that like, you actually have to put it in I, your schedule or I, you're I not do, gonna do it. sometimes put it in my yeah. schedule. I put like mountain biking or surfing. Yeah. And I like kind of build that into my yep. schedule. And, and for that purpose, I don't let anyone manage my schedule because it's going to be hard for an assistant. Don't make to go, compromises. Hey, yeah, Bond can't make that meeting because he's like mountain biking at <laughs> 9 a.m. <laughs> they might respect you more, frankly. <laughs> So I look at each day as this kind of like yeah. design challenge of how, how to be healthier. And there's like, there's a priority list yeah. that I make of, of how that day is going to be. Yeah. Kind of triage. Well, okay. So this is like the perfect way I think for us to end because you've done something that is a design solution and design approach. You've turned something like health using this fourth dimension of time, right? Mm. You're using time through the lens of scheduling to improve your health. That is a design mm, move, mm. right? You've decided to, that for you to have eight, well, first of all, to have agency to control that time, you've decided not to have somebody run your calendar and you've made a deliberate decision to prioritize these kinds of activities that have nothing to do with sort of, you know, business productivity, let's say that's about the self and giving yourself, you know, again, this agency, this priority, but also this permission to take that time because that's what that time is earmarked for. So your solution, the ingredient in your equation for more healthful life is that there should be a time, there should be a clock in that equation. Mm. It's not about like, oh, I should eat better. I should get back to the gym, all this stuff. It's just like put a clock in the equation and it's gonna happen. So there's a, just a perfect example of design thinking, frankly. Yeah. Alan, you are my design therapist guru. <laughs> I've learned so much from you. You've been inspiring me throughout the years and just honored that you could join us on the show. Thank oh, you, well, Alan. Thank you, Bon. This has been an enormous pleasure. It's fun just to talk to you, you know, if it's recorded or not. Any, <laughs> anytime. Thanks so much for having me on this. It's, it's a real privilege. Thank you again to the sponsor of this episode, Fortune Brainstorm Design. Use the code DESIGNLAB for a discount on event registration and go to fortunebrainstormdesign.com for more information and to register. Sign up for our newsletter if you haven't done so already. Every week we will send you some cool stuff to read. You can find the link to sign up 
at the top of our Twitter account, which is at Pod, or find the link in the podcast show notes. Find Alan Chachnoff both on Twitter and Instagram. His handle is at C-H-O-C-H-I-N-O-V. And reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram. I can be found at B-O-N-K-U on Twitter and at D-R-B-O-N-K-U on Instagram. And remember, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave us a review. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston. The cover design by Eden Liu, who was a former student of Alan Chachanoff's. See you next week. Music